These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Recently, I made a new dish for my wife's birthday. You see, birthdays around here are a big deal, and there's always some fancy dinner for family and friends with some elaborate concoction in the kitchen. This time, it was two giant pots of chicken paprikash, which we'd been planning for since last summer's planting season. You see, my father-in-law had planted what can only be called an absurd number of paprika plants, harvested the peppers, dried them, and ground them for us. It's a delightful dish to eat, but requires time and patience to cook, and you have to allow the complex flavors to blend properly. So, as I was putting in the last bits to let the pot simmer for an hour or so in the oven, I saw an inevitable direction in the recipe. Add one bay leaf. And so I did. Now, many of you have doubtlessly used a bay leaf in a stew or soup, and the flavor and aroma that it gives to the dishes are subtle but unmistakably delightful. The ancient Greeks, too, recognized the bay tree's distinctive green leaves, its aroma, and ability to flavor foods. They called the plant Daphne, while the Romans called it Laurus, laurel, and both ancient words for the bay tree, ahem, leaf, an indelible mark on our own culture through the personal names Daphne and Laurel. In this episode, we're going to break down the myth of Daphne, cover the different locations that the myth was set in, and introduce you to another kind of myth, the metamorphosis, where humans are said to change into some object in the natural world. So, sit back and enjoy another installment of the Greek Myth Files. As with many objects in the natural world, the Greeks developed a story, or muthos, to explain the origin of the Daphne tree. And metamorphosis myths, where a human changes into an animal or plant, were quite common. Most of these stories, however, do not seem to reach back to the earliest period of Greek history, but were later inventions that emerged as thinkers sought to explain the origin of things. In the case of Daphne, the girl who becomes a tree, the earliest version of the story that we can point to is no earlier than the 3rd century BCE. The most famous version of the Daphne myth is late and belongs to the Roman poet Ovid, whose long epic poem, called the Metamorphoses, is nothing but a cleverly composed series of mythical changes. Ovid's poem is a marvelous read, gory at times, frolicsome at others, but it is always cleverly arranged and narrated. You can always see his active and inventive mind at work, and we know that Ovid was very willing to change or tweak a story to make it fit his narrative or thematic goals. What that means is, although the Metamorphoses is a lot of fun to read, we cannot be certain if Ovid is following an earlier version faithfully or if he's making something up on his own. At any rate, Ovid's narration of the Daphne episode is compelling and memorable. It is set right after Apollo kills the Python and establishes his oracle at Delphi, the subject of our last episode. Ovid's weaving in of this tale here makes a lot of sense because Laurel is so prominent in Delphi, and Apollo was often identified as wearing a wreath of laurel. But Ovid creates a really neat connection to get into the story, and here's how it goes. 
Having just shot the python dead with his arrows, Apollo, the archer god, happens to look over and see the child Cupid, the god of desire, playing with his smaller bow. The greater god, full of pride in his recent triumph, seems weirdly threatened by the boy and basically mocks him. Cupid, of course, has the trump card and plays it. He shoots Apollo with a golden arrow of desire, while he shoots the maiden Daphne with a lead arrow of loathing. Daphne was, as Ovid tells it, Apollo's first love. But she had committed herself to a life of purity without men and had even asked her father, the river Peneos in Thessaly, not to give her over to any man. So when Apollo sets out after her, she runs off in horror. Now, Apollo sets out after her and tries to persuade her to stop, and the way Ovid tells it is really neat. I mean you no harm, he says. I'm no lion chasing a deer. It's all out of love. One has to imagine how this might have sounded to a young girl without any experience. But Apollo goes on. I'm so worried you might trip and hurt yourself. The ground is very rocky. Slow down and I'll slow down too. But Daphne's not persuaded. So Apollo goes on a third time. I'm not some caveman or shepherd boy. I'm a god. I'm worshipped in a lot of places. Jupiter's my dad, and I'm a really good musician. And finally he says, I can't help myself. I'm in love, and even though I'm the god of healing, there's no cure for my burning desire. But let's let Ovid tell it further. But her pursuer, driven by his passion, outspeeds the girl, giving her no pause. One step behind her, breathing down her neck. Her strength is gone. She blanches at the thought of the effort of her swift flight overcome, but at the sight of her Peneus, the river, she cries, Help me, dear father! If your waters hold any divinity, transform me and destroy that beauty by which I have too well pleased. Her prayer was scarcely finished when she feels sluggishness take possession of her limbs. Her supple trunk is girdled with a thin layer of fine bark over her smooth skin. Her hair turns into foliage, her arms grow into branches. Sluggish roots adhere to feet that were so recently so swift. Her head becomes the summit of a tree. All that remains of her is a warm glow. Loving her still, the god puts his right hand against the trunk and even now can feel her heart as it beats under the new bark. He hugs her limbs as if they were still human, and then he puts his lips against the wood, which even now revolts against his kiss. Although you cannot be my bride, he says, you will assuredly be my own tree, O Laurel, and will always find yourself girding my locks, my lyre, and my quiver too. Ovid's Metamorphoses was very influential, especially among poets and artists in the Renaissance and Baroque periods. One of my own very favorite pieces of art is Bernini's lifelike rendition of the Daphne myth that is now housed in the Borghese Gallery in Rome. Gian Lorenzo Bernini was an Italian sculptor and architect of the Baroque period. Back then, art and science were studied together, and Bernini did it all. His sculptures have always impressed me because of his ability to capture a moment in time, a dramatic moment. Like so many others, Bernini chose to depict the very moment that Daphne starts to turn into the tree that bears her name. And you can see the image on our website, manto-myth.org backslash gmf. 
but Bernini brilliantly depicts the moment to highlight just how close Apollo was to touching Daphne, and yet how very far as well. If you look at his hand, you might think that he was just grasping Daphne's hip. But if you look closely, the bark of the tree separates his hand from Daphne's body. Apollo is never in contact with her flesh. You really should put the Borghese Gallery on your list of places to visit in Rome. The Bernini sculptures there will not disappoint, and the Borghese Gardens are a delightful place to roam for a half day in the May sunshine or any other time of the year. Ovid's version, however, is not the only version of the tale, and there were some stark differences between Ovid's and the others. One neat version is recorded by the ancient Greek myth expert and literature professor named Parthenius, who was an older contemporary of Ovid and was instrumental in transmitting Greek ideas of poetry and myth to a Latin audience. One ancient source tells us that Parthenius was the great Latin poet Virgil's literature teacher. We are really fortunate to have a collection of stories composed by Parthenius in Greek called Disastrous Love Stories, and in it he records a version of the Daphne myth. Parthenius is a valuable source for rare and otherwise unknown versions of stories, but his book is noteworthy for another reason too. He is one of the few ancient writers of myth who provide first-hand accounts as to why they wrote collections of mythological stories. Parthenius opens with a letter to his recipient, a famous Latin poet named Cornelius Gallus, telling Gallus that he was presenting him with stories so that he could use them in his own Latin poetic creations. In other words, myth was something that could be turned into poetry. Now, side note, Gallus's poetry is unfortunately mostly lost to us, so we really can't tell how much he put Parthenius's directions to practice. Anyways, Parthenius reports a version of the Daphne myth that he attributes to an earlier collector of stories, a Greek 3rd century writer by the name of Philarchus. And we also see this version in the travel writer Pausanias in his 8th book, which covers Arcadia. In this version, the trouble begins when a mortal man named Leucippus falls in love with Daphne, who here is a Spartan huntress who wants nothing to do with men. Leucippus, unable to gain access to his beloved, dresses up as a woman so that they can start spending time together. The god Apollo sees this, gets jealous, and puts in Daphne's head the idea to take a bath in the river. When Leucippus refuses to get undressed, Daphne and her fellow huntswomen find out the truth and kill him. This is the point where Apollo sets out in pursuit of Daphne, who in turn flees and prays to Zeus to be turned into a Daphne tree, which is in fact what happens. So far, we've seen Ovid's cleverly constructed story that pits two archer gods, Apollo and Cupid, against one another, where the latter gets the upper hand over the former. Ovid vividly narrates the chase, Daphne's transformation into a tree, and Apollo's honoring of her by adopting her laurel branches as his wreath of choice. Parthenius's version adds the prequel involving Leucippus, who, as the god's rival, tries to con his way into making love to Daphne. Apollo, however, thwarts him and is in turn thwarted by Daphne, who wants nothing to do with him. There is a third version that comes from another collection of myths, one that comes to us from someone who might have been called Polyphidus, whose name means something like a teller of old tales, but it might be a pseudonym. Polyphidus composed a collection of myths himself where he systematically came up with explanations for how the supernatural events came to be. 
Listeners of this podcast met Polyphidus when we discussed ancient rationalizing approaches to myths. Polyphidus' collection is a wild ride, but at some point after he composed his collection, someone else added more myths to the work. So we have another version of the Daphne myth, although it's almost certainly not by Polyphidus' own hand. The story as told is not set either in Thessaly, as in Ovid, or in Sparta, as in Parthenius. Instead, we're taken to the landlocked region of Arcadia, where Daphne is the daughter of Gaia, the earth, and Ladon, the important river in Arcadia. In any case, the narrative is similar. Apollo desires her, and she flees from his embraces. But here, instead of turning into a laurel tree, she prays to her mother earth and is swallowed by Gaia, who in turn sends up a laurel tree in her place. This version clearly is trying to avoid the impossible idea that a girl actually turned into a tree. Instead, the girl disappears and Mother Earth sends up the tree in her honor. It's time to take stock of all these versions. First, the basic story is very consistent. Daphne is a young girl on the cusp of sexuality who has given herself over to a life without men. She is desired by Apollo, who chases her. She flees in disgust, prays to one of her parents, and either turns into or is replaced by the laurel tree. Some versions add a prequel involving the mortal Leucippus' attempt to sleep with Daphne by dressing up as a woman. What I find most interesting about this myth is not the obvious reflection of how horrifying it was to be a young girl in ancient Greece. After all, myths of gods ravishing women echoed the very real situation of young girls, 13 or 14 years old, being married off to much older men. Rather, for me, the interesting thing is how each version sets the myth in a different location. Ovid's version has Daphne, the daughter of the river Peneos, the major river that runs through Thessaly. Parthenius, in turn, takes us to Sparta, where Daphne is the daughter of Amyclos, who was a mythical king of Sparta. Polyphidus, in turn, takes us north to Arcadia, where Daphne is the daughter of the river Ladon, which Pausanias calls, quote, the most lovely of all rivers in Greece, end quote. In fact, Pausanias in Book 8 records the version with Leucippus, but it's not set in Sparta, but in Arcadia and the region to the west, Elis. This is a good example of how a myth can float, but why does it float? As it happens, each of these locations were known for their lush forests. The river Peneus, for example, flows through Tempe, which was a mountain pass known for its lush greenery. In fact, the travel writer Pausanias tells us that the first temple of Apollo in Delphi was constructed from laurel trees taken from Tempe. Surely, too, laurel trees grace the most lovely of rivers, the Arcadian Ladon, and even the area around Sparta. So, it goes to show how narratives can be appropriated by various peoples to accentuate the importance of a local phenomenon, giving them identity and a rich reputation. So far, we've seen several versions with modest differences, mostly in terms of geography. It is impossible to say whether individual locations were competing for Daphne, but there is one location where we can actually see a ruler appropriate the myth for specifically political reasons. So we'll turn our attention away from mainland Greece and the Peloponnesus and turn to a city that was founded by one of the successor generals of Alexander the Great. After Alexander created something of an empire by taking his army eastward and conquering areas like Egypt, Syria, Persia, not to mention taking a stab at India, he died, leaving something of a power vacuum. 
His generals, in turn, carved up the large landmass Alexander had controlled, and one of these was a guy by the name of Seleucus Nicator. He controlled what would become known as the Seleucid Empire, and one of the things that he did was to found a major city on the Orontes River called Antioch, which you might know from biblical sources. Well, Seleucus not only founded Antioch, he created a sort of Eden on Earth by creating a luxurious garden park that was named Daphne. Lush and green, full of natural springs, this park became famous for its beauty and peaceful spaces. And in it, Seleucus built a shrine to the god Apollo. Here, as often, myths were appropriated by leaders and communities, and it's pretty clear that the name Daphne was bound to draw the myth from mainland Greece eastward to the new city with its luxurious park. We don't know exactly when this happened, because the earliest evidence we have is from a very neat speech from the orator and teacher in Antioch by the name of Libanius, who lived in the mid-300s AD, meaning it's more than 600 years after the foundation of Antioch by Seleucus but it sets the original story back at the foundation where Seleucus encountered a miracle of sorts. But we'll let Libanius tell it. And this suburb, Daphne, much famed in song, Seleucus elevated to the dignity of a shrine, dedicating the place to the god since he found that the myth was true. For Apollo, when he was enamored of Daphne but could not win her, pursued her, and as she was changed by her prayer into a tree, he transformed his loved one into a crown. Thus was the tale sung, and the chase revealed to Seleucus the truth of the tale. For he once rode out to hunt, taking his dogs with him, and when he came to the tree which had once been a maiden, the horse stopped and smote the ground with his hoof, and the earth sent up a golden arrowhead. This revealed its owner by means of an inscription, for it was engraved of Phoebus. I suppose that in his grief over the transformation of the maiden, he shot all his arrows, and the tip of one, broken off, was hidden by the earth, and was preserved for Seleucus as a warning to adorn the spot and to consider it as what it actually was, a shrine of Apollo. When Seleucus held the arrow tip aloft, another omen came at him, suddenly, a serpent, coming right at him, hissing. But when it reached Seleucus, the serpent's gaze turned calm, and it vanished, another omen that Apollo was still present in the space and was favorable to Seleucus. Now, we should take this whole story with a grain of salt and recognize that the myth is meant to add legitimacy and clout to the new city Antioch and to its neighborhood Daphne. The temple built in Daphne was not some mortal's idea, but sanctioned and promoted by the god himself who literally left the sign that Seleucus should build a shrine to the god there, on the spot. The myth of Daphne is one that lends itself to being drawn in different directions, anywhere that might have featured laurel trees in the landscape. Thessaly, Sparta, Arcadia, even Antioch on the Orontes wanted to associate the myth with their place. For those who would like to see a map and overview of the locations for the myth, we invite you to visit our website for the episode, manto-myth org backslash gmf. There you will also see a mosaic from Antioch that shows Daphne's transformation as she flees from Apollo, as well as some images from Renaissance and Baroque art. And we have another treat, an original drawing of the transformation by one of our outstanding students here, Beatrice Matheson, which also serves as our show tile. Thanks, Beatrice. Although the myth seems straightforward, it does a number of things. 
On the one hand, the myth reflects the very real horrors that young women of marriageable age faced when they were preparing for a life with an older man. The Daphne myth also explains why Apollo was so enamored with Laurel and used it to crown his head. It also explains, at least in part, why the victors in the Pythian Games, those celebrations held in Delphi in Apollo's honor, received laurel wreaths as their prize. Finally, the myth could float and be attached to different locations. Many regions clearly wanted to highlight their laurel tree groves, and so they emphasized that the transformation happened there, in their location, bringing them prestige and fame. Well, we hope that you enjoyed your time with us today. We had a lot of fun making this episode, and we hope that it brings you some fame and prestige among your family and friends. We have some people to thank, especially our new voice actor, Liv Kettler. Welcome to the show, Liv. And we're also really thrilled to showcase Beatrice's original art. As always, our music has been generously provided by Jared Sims, whose new band, Duochrome, you should definitely check out. It's great stuff. These have been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time.